This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Our guest today is crime writer S.A. Cosby. He spoke with our producer, Sam Brigger, about his new novel, All the Sinners Bleed. Here's Sam. In the new novel, All the Sinners Bleed, by our guest S.A. Cosby, Sheriff Titus Crown is tracking down a serial killer, terrorizing his jurisdiction, Charon County, a fictional county in southeast Virginia. The killer's victims are black children. As he investigates, Titus unravels the racial and religious animus behind the killings. Titus had left Charon County to go to college and to work with the FBI investigating domestic terrorism. But after that career abruptly ended, he reluctantly returned to live with his aging father. Titus was elected the first black sheriff of Charon, a remarkable achievement considering the prevalence of Confederate flags in the area, the high school named after Jefferson Davis, and a statue honoring the Confederate cause outside the courthouse. Titus has to figure out a way to keep the county safe from the serial killer and also keep simmering racial tensions from getting out of hand especially as a white supremacist group is planning to march in support of what it calls, quote, Southern heritage. S.A. Cosby has written several crime novels, including the bestseller Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland. Razorblade Tears appeared on many best-of-the-year lists in 2021. Cosby, whose first name is Sean, grew up in Matthews County, a place very much like the fictional Charon County, and now lives nearby. Well, Sean Cosby, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start um, with the prologue to your book, if you could do a reading for us. And this sort of sets up what Charon County is like and, and some of its history. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Charon County. Charon County was founded in bloodshed and darkness, literally and figuratively. Even the name is enveloped in shadows and morbidity. Legend has it that the name of the county was supposed to be Charlotte or Charles, but the town elders waited too late, and those names were already taken by the time they decided to incorporate their fledgling encampment. As the story goes, they just moved their finger down the list of names until they settled on Charon. Those men, weathered as wit leather, with hands like splitting malls, bestowed the name on their new town with no regard to its macabre nature. Or perhaps they just liked the name because a river flowed through the county and emptied into the Chesapeake like the river sticks. Who knows? Who could know the thoughts of those long dead men? What is known is that in 1805, in the dead of night, a group of white landowners, chafing at the limits of their own manifest destiny, set fire to the last remaining indigenous village on the teardrop-shaped peninsula that would become Charon County. Those who escaped the flames were brought down by muskets with no regard to age, gender, or infirmity. And that was the first of many tragedies in the history of Charon. There was the cannibalism of the winter of 1853, the malaria outbreak of 1901, the United Daughter of the Confederacy picnic poisoning of 1935, the Danforth family murder-suicide of 1957, the tent revival, baptismal drownings of 1968, and on and on and on. The soil of Charon County, like most towns and counties in the South, was sown with a generation of tears. That's S.A. Cosby reading from his new book, All the Sinners Bleed. So, Sean, I really thought that was interesting, the sort of idea that the county is founded in bloodshed and darkness, and that somehow um, that history has haunted the place or tainted it. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I'm I, so I'm a Southerner born and bred. I was raised in Virginia. I was born in Matthews County. Um, I've lived my whole life, you know, 30 miles from the former uh, capital of the Confederacy. If there's a place that is more haunted by its past and more, um, and more uh, overwhelmed by its original sin than the South. I'm not aware of it. Um, the South is, the, in many ways, it's the birthplace of the country, um, but it's also a microcosm for what's wrong with the nation. And so I'm a big proponent of the idea that maybe the South isn't, you know, supernaturally haunted, but it is definitely haunted by the pain and the bloodshed and the violence that existed here. Do you sort of see that haunting where whenever you're walking around or driving around where you live? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you can definitely feel it. You can feel it. You know, for years, our local um, elementary school was uh, Lee Jackson School, named after Robert E. Lee and, and Stonewall Jackson. Um, and, you know, one, I went to school one name there. wasn't enough. <laughs> yeah, one, one Confederate statue, <laughs> one Confederate soldier wasn't enough. We had to really hammer home the point of what we're trying to say here. And so, you know, as a kid, I went to school there. Uh, I was taught that the Civil War was the war of northern aggression. Um, I was taught that the Civil War wasn't technically, if you squint, about slavery. Um, and so those are things that are still being taught to a different, to a certain extent in my hometown today. I think, you know, um, somebody said to me one time that the difference between the South and post-World War II Germany is that Germans are ashamed of their history and uh, Southerners aren't ready to accept it. And I think that's a, I think that has a lot of validity. We'll get to some of that a little bit later. Um, but first, you know, I read that you originally set out to write a book about police brutality, but then you shifted and you're, the hero of this book is actually a sheriff. Um, what brought about that evolution? So and this book was really inspired by the murder of George Floyd and all the events of that summer. And I really wanted to take a book and talk about policing, but use it in, like I said before, the microcosm of a small town to reflect the issues and, and concerns about policing on a larger scale. And what I realized rather quickly is that I did not have enough wherewithal to write about that in a really truly unbiased fashion. I'm too personally involved in it. I've been pulled over for driving while black before. I've had my face shoved in the, in the asphalt for no reason just because I was driving a nice car. And so there was a lot of emotion there that I wasn't able to pull back from. And when you write like that, I think you end up sermonizing. Nobody wants a 300-page sermon. You know, you want a good story. And so I, I set the book aside for a while, and uh, I didn't think about it. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was a former minister. He said something that really struck me. He said, you know, the thing that bothered me the most is when I was a minister, I didn't feel like I actually was helping the least of us, the people who needed my help the most. And that sort of sparked this idea in me about a character who's trying to do that. I didn't want to write about it from the point of view of a, of a minister just because I felt like uh, writing about the police and writing about a sheriff, I could sort of accomplish on a smaller scale the things I had originally set out to do. So I can talk about policing, but I also... I can talk about religion. I can talk about sex. I can talk about class. You know, those are, in my opinion, the four pillars of Southern fiction because Southern fiction is so intrinsically tied up with those issues, with religion, with sex, with class. And and those things are in, intrinsic in the work of Faulkner or, or Flannery O'Connor or Harry Cruz or Carson McCullers or Ernest J. Gaines. You see all of that all the time. And it's always in flux in their books. And so I, I decided I was going to try to write a book like that. He wants to obviously keep law and order in his county, but also in his personal life, like his closet is color coordinated <laughs> and his desk, like his, I don't know if it's his, his phone has to be like 90 degrees to mm -hmm. the desk. So he's, and, and I think he's trying to keep the chaos out of his life as well. Like I, this is a character that's dealing with a lot of pain and trauma, like both from personal losses, particularly the loss of his his mother when he was young, but also I think because he's like living in this place, he's a black man living in this place that was part of the Confederacy and where some of the residents still believe in white supremacy. Mm -hmm. The hero isn't always the person who does the over-the-top, angelic he, uh, Greek mythology heroic thing. Sometimes the hero is the person who just stands up and says, all right, I'll do it. You know, and so with Titus, that's sort of what happened with him. He wanted to change the police force in his hometown. He was he had to come home and he saw things that he didn't like and, and nobody else was standing up to do it. And so he finally did it. And what he finds out is that, you know, being the hero can sometimes make you a pariah. You know, in his town, he has friends that he went to school with, went to high school with that no longer speak to him because he's the sheriff. Um, but on the other side, he has white citizens who are are apologists for the Confederacy who don't, quote unquote, trust him because he's a black man. And so he finds himself sort of a man alone, a man on an island. Um, but yet he still still is dedicated to protecting his hometown, protecting the people there, even the people that he, as he said, didn't vote for him. Um, and I think that says a lot about Titus and his morality. And I think that in a way, Titus is a little naive. He really believes if I just apply the law equally, then the law will be equal. And, you know, he's working within a system that I think he thinks is broken 
that a lot of people think is working just the way it's designed. And so that sort of conflict is, uh, to me, interesting as a writer. I want to see how that character deals with it. Um, I, I sometimes find my, I found myself feeling sorry for Titus because he really is doing the best he can. So as I mentioned earlier, Sean, in your book, there's a statue commemorating the Confederate cause. It stands in front of the courthouse. It's it's actually not even like a real person. It's just called Old Rebel Joe. And in the book, you write about like how this statue and others like it were erected in the South by this group, the United Daughters of the Confederacy. I was hoping you could read that passage for us about the history of these statues. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you. Titus pulled out of the parking lot and slipped onto the road. Night had come and covered the sky above Charon County like a black blanket full of pinpricks. He turned right and drove past the courthouse building. Ricky Sowers and his neo-Confederates had installed solar lights around the statue of old Rebel Joe. Titus thought the lights looked cheap and disposable, much like the statue itself. It had been erected in 1923 by the United Daughters of the Confederacy a part of a coordinated and extensive propaganda campaign to reframe traitors as patriots. After World War I, thousands of black veterans had returned home after saving democracy from the Kaiser with a renewed sense of dignity. They were heroes, after all. Why should they have to bow and scrape to anybody? Then the Red Summer happened, and white men, like Everett Cunningham, Scott's great-grandfather, made it their mission to remind these heroes of their place. So, Sean, did you know about that history before uh, researching for the book, or did you come across it then? Um, yes and no. Uh, my grandfather, uh, my, actually my great-grandfather was a World One vet, um, so I knew a little bit about the Red Summer. Um, as far as the Confederate statues, I had a little bit of that history, but I had found it uh, much later in researching another book, and I was just fascinated by the uh, the idea that some 20, 30-odd years after the Civil War and uh, after the uh, – history of the country was adjudicated, these folks uh, took it upon themselves to reframe the Civil War. And I think that's a, you know, I think that's a horrible, horrible thing that we're still dealing with today, that we are not able to accept the truth of our history, not just the Civil War, but of, you know, America's history in total. You know, the idea of America is this incredible, wonderful experiment in freedom and autonomy. But the way we got there is filled and littered with, you know, darkness and degradation. And I think we do ourselves a disservice if we're not honest about it. It's funny. I, I'll hear a lot of people say, you know, we can't take these these statues down. And these people were just people of their time. And, you know, they were fighting for what they thought was right. You know, and I'm like, yeah, and I'm sure Nazis thought they were right, too. That doesn't make it correct. You know, I, I'll hear people sometimes, especially nowadays, you hear people say, oh, you're trying to make – you know, young white children feel guilty about what their ancestors did. Well, if they don't share those same sentiments, why would they feel guilty? You know, it's that 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 maddening uh, fallacy of logic that drives me crazy sometimes. Yeah, you, knowing that the history of these statues that they were part of this like propaganda campaign after World War One, like really to subjugate black people. Like, what does that do to the arguments that some make about? how honoring the Confederacy or even displaying the Confederate flag is just a way to celebrate Southern heritage, that it's not tethered to the history of slavery or white supremacy. I think that's an incredibly naive, if not outright disingenuous attitude. You you can't separate those two. Um, you know, I, I am a Southerner. Uh, my, my Southern bona fides go back to 1867. My great-great-great-grandfather, uh, Gabriel Cosby, and his brother Kit Cosby founded the church that I attended for a number of years. Um, when you wave that Confederate flag and tell people that that's Southern heritage, what you're doing is erasing all the indigenous people that live in the South, all the black people that live in the South, the the uh, huge amount of uh, uh, Jewish Southerners that live in the South. What you're saying is that only one demographic's interpretation of history matters. And, you know, I am a proud Southerner. I have no intention of leaving. And every scrap of land or every pole that some good old boy erects to put a confederate flag on someone who looks like me has bled and died and lived there and i have as much right to southern heritage as anyone else and so i i don't plan on ceding one inch one foot one iota to someone who has this sort of reimagined revisionist uh idea of what the civil war was um there is a similar statue in matthews county where you grew up is is that still there or has that been taken down 
No, it's still there. Um, we had a, 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 a there was a referendum on the on the uh, election uh, board a few years ago to take it down, and the folks who were in favor of it staying up were successful in wording the referendum in such a confusing way. I think people didn't realize what exactly they were voting for, um, you know, and they they messaged it as oh they're trying to take away our history and and all that. And I, I you know, again, that's just that's frustrating. I mean, history is you can have history in museums. Doesn't mean you forgot it. Those statues are not up for historical reasons. Those statues are reminders that the people who fought a, a whole war to keep people in chains do not accept their loss. And I think that's something that again has really. Um, worn us down as a people, as a nation, that we we did not take action to make the people who were literal traitors be treated like traitors. We we let the you know I think it's the first time in the history of the world that the losers of a civil conflict were able to dictate the terms of how they remembered. And so uh, I find that frustrating, not only as a Southerner but as an African American. You know, the one in in Matthews, the the statue of Matthews is built directly in front of what used to be the courthouse building. And that's a very clear message that, you know, if you come here for redress of grievances, you'll find yourself wanting because this is what we think of you. And so, um, you know, it's funny in my hometown, I had a, a gentleman that I knew, a white gentleman who was like, you know, I don't know why y'all are getting all upset about that statue. Now. I never heard about it when I was a kid. And I wanted to turn them like when you were a kid, people were being lynched. You know, you're 68. When you were a child, Speaking out against the statue could get you shot in the face. And so um, I, I, I I definitely write about that, you know, uh, in my work, not just all the centers, but all my work. I talk about race. I talk about the the way that we are um, slowly but surely trying to understand what it means to be Southern in the 21st century. Um, you know, and uh, I find that. You know, I love the South. I really do. I love where I come from. I love the place that I live. But to paraphrase James Baldwin, because I love the South, I reserve the right to criticize it because I know it can be better than what it is. So later in the book, there's this white supremacist group led by like this wonderfully named character, Ricky Sowers. Um, and he, <laughs> they, they hold a march to protect the statue, even though it doesn't seem like there's a plan to remove it. And Titus your hero actually has to protect their right to march and they're marching in Confederate uniforms. And you write like what he thinks when he looks at them. You say, he felt an atavistic revulsion roll through his body. The sight of these men, men who thought their lack of complete success in their every endeavor was proof of the falsity of their privilege and their dress grays made him sick. And I I really think that description... um, Men who thought their lack of complete success in their every endeavor was proof of the falsity of their privilege is really interesting. I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, so I've had debates with people I considered friends or people I knew or people I grew up with that this idea of white privilege doesn't exist. You know, there's no such thing. It's like I, I had a gentleman tell me, I'm working every day. You know, I, I'm, I'm paying bills. How is that? Where's my privilege? Where's my free car? And privilege is not free things. I think people confuse privilege with success. You know, just because you're not successful doesn't mean that you're not privileged. It's like you can be in a foot race and your your mom can be the one judging the foot race and your your brother can give you a 10 foot head start. And if you lose, that doesn't mean that you didn't have any privileges, you know, just mean you weren't able to take advantage of them. Um, and so I think there's this idea among some folks that, you know, their lack of success is it's a proof that the privilege doesn't exist. No, your privilege is to drive down the road without getting pulled over. For nothing. You know, your privilege is to go into a a store and have a $20 bill that looks a little janky and the person just not accepting it. You don't end up with somebody's knee on your neck. You know, that's your privilege. Your privilege is to have an uncle, have a cousin, have a friend, have a fraternity brother who works at a bank, who gets you a good mortgage when you come in, even though maybe your credit isn't 100 percent. That's your privilege. Now, if you lose the house later on. That again, it's not emblematic of not having that privilege, and so I definitely am aware of that. It's something that I've seen growing up, uh, you know, as a, as a kid myself. Um, when I was uh, when I was thirteen, I won a uh, a chess contest at our school. We had like a chess tournament, and there was a kid. I'm not gonna name him obviously, but there was a kid who didn't play chess, who didn't like chess, but he was mad that I had won, and um, I was on the school bus with him, and he uh, 
poured some liquid on me. And we got into a fight, you know, as kids do. And, um, you know, when the, when the principal asked him, why did he do it? He was just mad that I won the contest. He was tired of people talking about how smart I was and all this kind of stuff. And I remember turning to him, and I'm like, but you don't like chess. And I, at the time, as a child, I couldn't wrap my mind around that, you know. And as an adult, I realized that this particular young man was in a household where anything that wasn't whiteness-centered was taken as an insult, was taken as a slight. That itself is a privilege to believe that, to feel that, um, you know, uh, I've never been ashamed of being black. I've never been ashamed of being a black man. But I'm acutely aware that my life has never been easier because of my, the color of my skin. Um, just like I have friends who are white who's I, I doubt that their lives have ever been harder because of the color of their skin. And again, I don't want you to feel bad about that. I don't want you to you know, genuflect and grovel about that. I just want you to acknowledge it. I think acknowledging it goes a long way to help healing uh, some of our issues. We're listening to the interview our producer Sam Brigger recorded with crime writer S.A. Cosby, author of the new novel, All the Sinners Bleed. His other books include Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland. After a break, we'll hear more of the interview, and our book critic Maureen Corrigan will share her thoughts on Barbie dolls and the Barbie movie. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Molly C.V. Nesper, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Seth Kelly, also a producer at Fresh Air. If you like the Fresh Air podcast, we think there's a pretty good chance that you'll also like the Fresh Air newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter written by us, the people who help make the show. You'll get all the week's interviews and reviews in one place. Plus, staff recommendations, interviews from the archive, bonus audio, and what's coming up on the show. Imagine an email you enjoy getting. To subscribe, go to whyy.org slash Fresh air. Let's get back to the interview our producer Sam Brigger recorded with writer S.A. Cosby. His new novel is called All the Sinners Bleed. The action takes place in a fictional county in southeast Virginia called Charon County, which is a lot like the county Cosby grew up in, where the high school was named after Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and where a statue in front of the courthouse honors the Confederate cause. His novel's hero is Titus Crown. Charon County's first black sheriff. So you grew up in southeast Virginia in Matthews County, a place uh, that sounds very similar to to the Charon County of your book. <laughs> um, could you tell us about where you grew up, your family, your home? Yeah. Oh, man. So Matthews County. It is Charon. I'll just be honest with you. <laughs> I, just, I just changed the name so nobody gets mad at me. Um, but no, I love Matthews County. Matthews County is the smallest county in Virginia. Population hovers around 8,000 people. And I know all of them. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> which made uh, which made dating difficult in high school because you're related <laughs> to everybody. It's like, oh, I met this girl. She's your cousin. Oh, okay. <laughs> Never mind. Um, so we had to go next door to Gloucester to date. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful place to live. It's right on the Chesapeake Bay. Um, you know, there are farms there. There's uh, The sea is a huge part of our lives. My dad was a waterman or a, a commercial fisherman when I was a kid. Um, my grandmother worked at the... Uh, seafood plant where they uh, picked crab meat and, and uh, uh, shelled uh, oysters and, and scallops. Um, you know, my grandfather, uh, like I said, he was an elder in our church. Um, he was a, a man that I looked up to a lot. Um, Sunday evenings, uh, people come after church to my grandma's house and they would just sort of casually gather there. And My grandmother would go get some hamburger meat or she'd have some venison steaks and somebody would cook and then invariably somebody would find a a jug of moonshine or a jar and pass that around. And I grew up around these really interesting um, backyard orators and these uh, really interesting, uh, 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 you know, barbecue raconteurs 
um, my uncles and my aunts told, you know, just this history of oral storytelling that I grew up around that I really love, you know, and uh, my uncles would tell stories and my aunts would always be like, <laughs> always say, that's a lie. And my uncle uh, Edward would say, you know, well, if it ain't true, it ought to be. And so, um, <laughs> and so just this joy of telling stories of telling jokes. So what were the books that um, your mom or other people in your family read? Um, I grew up in a household where people read a lot. My mom read uh, biographies and historical novels, and she read Greek mythology. And she used to make my brother and I, uh, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, but whenever we did get some extra money, um, she wouldn't just give it to us as an allowance. She would make us solve riddles. Hmm. And I remember my brother was like 15. He was like, I'm getting a job. <laughs> <'Cause> like, <laughs> it's too much. It's, it's too much Too much mental <laughs> acuity going on here. Um, but my mom read those books. My grandmother was huge romance novel fan. So I read all these Harlequin romances. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Learned to uh, look up words that I didn't understand. So, you know, you go right to the dictionary. Like, what does too mess it mean? And like, oh, okay. <laughs> and, um, and so, and then my, uh, my aunt, and my uncle, respectively, read horror novels and detective novels. Yeah. My aunt read my aunt gave me my first Stephen King novel, my first Clyde Barker novel. Um and my uncle was gave me all of his uh John D. McDonald, uh, Travis McGee novels. Uh-huh. Uh, so the deep blue something and, and I love those stories. And uh I remember my aunt when she gave me my first Stephen King novel, Salem's Lot, I was thirteen. And uh, she said, uh, she said, hey, you know, you'll be able to handle this? I'm like, yeah, I'll be fine. She said, I don't want your mom to get mad at me. I was like, all right. And I read the book. And then for the next two weeks, I slept with this popsicle crucifix <laughs> that I made <laughs> under my pillow because I was so afraid Ralphie Glick was coming to my window. So, Shauna, you said something just a second ago about how in Matthews County, there's 8,000 people. You know all of them. And that's kind of that's kind of what it seems like in, in your book, um, that everyone knows each other. Many people are each in each other's business. Um, you, but, and also, like, you even know, like, who all the white supremacists are. And, like, everyone drinks at this one bar, like, <laughs> like all the white people, all the black people. And, you know, unsurprisingly, there's a lot of bar fights there. Was, is mm-hmm. that what it was like living there? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it is. It, I think it's because uh, I think in the South, you're, in many ways, the South was forced to acknowledge their their uh, horrible past and segregation. And so in doing so, we are uh, more accustomed to being around each other, I think, in a way that if you go to, you know, the, the, a certain neighborhood in New York, for instance, um, you don't have that sort of forced uh, rec- reclamation. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's good that we were forced to do that because I think it, you know, it helps move things along as, as well as things can be moving along. Uh, but yes, yeah, uh, there's a bar here. Uh, I won't name them, but there's a local bar here that everybody ends up at. And, and you know, and as people are wont to do when they had a little bit too much of the uh, libations, um, they, uh, they have a tendency to uh, adjudicate disagreements with their fists. And uh, I used to be a bouncer there, so I saw a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, I think you've actually admitted to getting a few of those fights yourself. <laughs> I am uh I am currently three and oh, so <laughs> <laughs> um Titus's mother uh was a big churchgoer, but he stopped going to church after she died and he's no longer a believer. Like like your main character, you lost your faith when you were pretty young. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, so like Titus, my mother had a physical disability. My mother had spinal stenosis, and it caused her to have physical disabilities and uh, and some difficulty walking and so so on and so forth. And I remember a specific incident when I was about 9 or 10. We went to uh, a revival meeting, a, a tent revival, basically. And um, there was a guy there who was uh, supposed to be a faith healer. And even though my mom was a little bit skeptical, she was at a point where, you know, her physical capabilities were eroding and uh, rather quickly. And so, you know, like anybody, she, you know, decided what was the harm to go to one of these events. And I remember we were standing in line to get in. And at the time, she wasn't using the wheelchair. She had two canes that she was walking on. And um, there were just a couple of gentlemen smoking cigarettes out front. And my mom uh, used to smoke. And by this time, she had quit. But whenever she saw somebody with a cigarette, she would always get that old urge. And she said to make make comment of those guys smoking. And so then later when we were in the tent revival and the minister was asking for people to come up on the stage, um, two of the people that came on stage, uh, one was on crutches or one was supposed to be blind, were both those gentlemen that we had seen out front. I remember my mom turning to me. I was a little boy, but she talked to me like I was an adult all the time. She said, well, I see the only thing they're healing is their pockets. And, uh, you know, and then later on, uh, some members of a different church, not my home church, came to pray over my mother and, and in, in an effort to heal her. And, and you know, 
something that didn't work. They made an assumption. They made an insinuation that she wasn't praying hard enough. And that really, she didn't have enough faith. Yeah. And it really, really upset me. Mm-hmm. Cause I think, you know, I was like, you know, I think I was 11 and I was, I'm a mouthy 11-year-old, and I said, you know, that's not true. Because I knew me and my brother had helped her get on her knees to pray. And, you know, both of us holding her arms and guiding her to the ground. And so that really did have a lot to do with how uh, I sort of lost my faith in church as an organization. But I never lost my faith in spirituality, you know. Uh, I think the church, little c, is a building. But church, capital C, is, is a philosophical and spiritual ideal. So even though Titus doesn't go to church— um and is critical about institutionalized religion. He can't really get away from his influence. You have this passage where you write, 20 years removed from the last time since he willingly attended a church service, and he still found himself using the jargon of the devout. It never left you, not completely. The cadence, the syncopation, the King James syntax. It was all there waiting to reemerge like 17-year cicadas. So is is that your experience? Like, does the language of Bible, like, jump off your tongue? Yeah, it does sometimes. Especially, like, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. So, mm-hmm. like, I like to say that means our, our, our church choir had a bass guitar. So it's very, <laughs> it's very rhythmic uh, in, in service. And uh, it's not a staid at all. And so you kind of get caught up in it. And you go there and you're sitting there, and, you know, and, and the cynic and you're like, oh, you know, this is, you know, you're so cynical about, you know, the, the offering and where's the money going and why mm-hmm. the minister got a new car and all this right. stuff. And then somebody there's starts no air conditioning. Exactly. Book, yeah. yeah, yeah, we're all working on fans, but the air conditioning only works one out of every couple hours. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, you sit there and all that, and then somebody gets up and they start singing an old hymn, you know, an old church spiritual. And then all of a sudden you're 11 years old again, mm-hmm. and you're standing next to your grandmother, and she's dancing and singing, and all that comes bubbling up. And it's like it's unbidden. You don't know it's coming, you know. Um, but you know, um, it's it's incredible how much of an impact church has had on our lives in the South, but in this black community specifically, mm-hmm. how much it was a backbone of the civil rights movement, how much it's been a backbone of social movements ever since. But again, as I said, how easily that comfort can become a cudgel. All right, let's take one more break here. If you're just joining us, our guest is author S.A. Cosby, whose new book is called All the Sinners Bleed. More after break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Sean, your wife owns a funeral home in Virginia, and you've worked there in the past. I don't know if you still work there, but you're listed as a staff member on the webpage. What what did or what do you do there? <laughs> so in the beginning, uh, I did pretty much everything except the stuff that you had to be licensed to do. So I leave that to my wife and her staff. But uh, I clean, I wash the cars, I wash the vehicles, wash the hearse, uh, vacuum up, clear the trash, uh, did minor repair stuff around the office, you know, fixing an outlet here and there. I, I did go and do what's called a body removal or body retrieval. So when a person passed, I was the one that went and picked them up. Um, and so all of that really helped teach me a lot of empathy. Like you get this when you work in a funeral home, you see people at the worst time of their life, other than something personally happening to them themselves. They've lost someone that's very close to them. That means a lot to them. And so watching the way the staff there dealt with people. And when I mean dealt with, I mean, you know, empathize with them, console them, comfort them. Um, it really went a long way to me understanding 
that everybody deserves that. Because some of the people that come there aren't nice. You know, some of the people that come there because they're in this horrible moment in their life, they can take that out on the staff of the funeral home. And I never saw them raise their voice. I never saw them take advantage of that situation. And so for me as a writer, it went a long way to me looking at my characters, even my horrible characters, like even the character, the killer in this book, you know, I want to empathize with them. And when I say empathize, that doesn't mean I endorse anything they do. And that doesn't mean I sympathize with them, but I want to know what made them that way. How did they get there? Um, And so for me as a writer, it was an invaluable tool, a lesson in this idea of empathy, of understanding, of seeing things from another person's point of view. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that because I thought that both in this book, All the Sinners Bleed and Razor Blade, Tears, you have these really affecting passages of people going through very hard moments of grief. And yeah, I mean, you know, like I wrote when I wrote Raised by Tears in the process of writing it, my mother was was terminally ill. And uh, and then with All the Sinners Bleed, I thought I was over that. But I still was processing it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a scene um, where Titus is talking about his mother to his girlfriend, Darlene. He talks about how, you know, there's a pain that only a son knows that uh, he feels when his mother can't hug him. Mm-hmm. You know, and, uh, you know, I, my mom, like I said, has several physical disabilities. And toward the end of life, it was really hard for her to put her arms around me. And, uh, you know, there's just this thing that you as a child, I don't mean, care how old you are. You want your mom to hug you. And, um, you know, it's a, it's one of those moments that I think is unfortunately relatable to everyone. So in your book, you write that there's a funeral home that serves black clientele and then another that serves white ones, and that funeral homes are the last places in America where segregation is openly tolerated. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think especially in the South, um, you know, funeral business – uh, you know, came about, you know, in the wake of uh, the, the the death of Lincoln, ironically. He was the first president to be taken to different states, to be lying in state. And so the, the idea that, and also the Civil War advanced funeral business where kids, you know, were going from, you know, Amherst, New York down to South Carolina and they had to get back home. And so it's interesting to me uh, as someone outside funeral business looking in that funeral business was also one of the first places that African-Americans were able to find success in the business wise where, you know, the funeral home because white people sure didn't want to put hands on a dead black body. And so the funeral home became sort of this economic center in black communities. It was the place that you went to talk to somebody about legal matters. You know, that the funeral director wasn't a lawyer. So the funeral business and funeral homes in black communities are very strong. It's a very important part of the community. But that being said, the the specter of racism hangs over it because for years and years and years, you know, it was a a gentleman's agreement that white people went to this funeral home and black people went to that funeral. That's broken down a lot in in recent years. Um, You see a a lot less of that. But, you know, I, I won't. Uh, I won't date myself, but I'm not so old that I don't remember when that was a hard and fast but quiet rule. Um, and so that has changed a little bit, but you still see a lot of that. You mean like the the people would, the people that picked up the bodies would automatically take the person to the funeral home corresponding oh, no, it, to their room? Yeah, even further than that. Like when the person passed, if it was like a hospital, you know, the, the nurses who called, they never called a black funeral home, even by mistake. It was always again, quietly agreed that we're just, this person is going to go to this wife in her home. I think what happened was with everything, as time moved on, if people intermarried, we had interracial relationships and, and just people, you know, getting good sense. It wasn't so much about the social nicety of keeping the races separated, even in death. It became a thing of like, no, we want to celebrate this person's life and we have a relationship with this funeral home, but we have a relationship with that funeral home. And it's not right. race-based. It's more. Like family has always gone to this mm-hmm. funeral all right, so you you said earlier uh, you've gotten in a few bar fights. I, I wanted to talk to you, although you you say you're not an aggressive person, but it so, sounds like part of that might have been related to one of your jobs as a bouncer. <laughs> yeah. uh, so in, in in the book, your 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 character Titus, he gets into some fights. He also almost gets into a lot of fights, and there's this thing that he does, which you you see in movies and stuff, where you kind of the the prelude before a fight is sort of getting into someone's personal space. Right. And, and like, I just wanted, like you talk about that moment that like 
when you have two people squaring off. Um, it's kind of this electrifying moment where you don't really know what's going to happen next. Yeah, I think especially when I was a bouncer, you saw it a lot. There were there were confrontations that you could tell we're not going to get physical. It was just going to be a lot of talking, a lot of posturing. You mm-hmm. know, it's those are the guys that wait till their friends show up, and um, you know, you know, they're the guys always like, oh, keep, "Hold me back." You lucky they hold me back, <laughs> and it's like, and I, you know, I always loved him in that moment when the guy's friends would let him go. It's like, <laughs> it's like we're not holding back by all means. Continue, um, but um, in in the moment where you. The moment where you know it's going to be an actual physical confrontation is when people stop talking and they're just in each other's personal space. You step into someone's personal space, your nose to nose or your nose or your foreheads are like less than an inch apart because now it's become almost that flight or flight reaction is going to happen. And that's when you know something's going to go down. Um, The fun thing I think it's funny unless people are professionally trained and I mean, unless you're trained in combat sports. The fight usually devolves into just rolling around and breathing hard. It's always going to end up out of breath quickly. Yeah, and everybody's wrestling, and then (laughs) your shirt's untucked, and you lost a shoe, and and finally people separate you. And so, um, you know, of course, there are are confrontations that escalate, you know, but there is a a type of confrontation where it's just, you know, are you tired? Are you done now? Did you get out of your system? Right. And so obviously that would move forward and people would either be kicked out of the bar or they pulled apart and pulled to the other side of the bar and so on and so forth. So when you were a bouncer, did you have like a move that you like to get someone out or of the bar or like to neutralize someone that you would have to use? I always found, and it sounds hilarious, I always found a good, especially if you're taller than someone, mm. a good wedgie was good to get him out of the bar. <laughs> Just grab him by their underpants and pull those up as high as you can because it disarms them and they they honestly don't know how to react. And by the time they realize what they want to do, you've gotten them outside. Uh, so that was my go-to move. I didn't like, <laughs> I, I didn't want to get into a slug fest with you. I just wanted to remove you from the situation as fast as yeah. possible. So. Yeah. yeah, they probably are never expecting that. And not at all. <laughs> Well, Sean Cosby, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. S.A. Cosby's new novel is called All the Sinners Bleed. He spoke with our producer, Sam Brigger. After a break, book critic Maureen Corrigan will share her thoughts about Barbie, the doll, and the movie. This is Fresh Air. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. The Barbie movie, directed by Greta Gerwig, is a big topic of conversation this summer. But to a special subset of audience members, girls who played with Barbies, the movie can evoke a lot of pink-tinged feelings. Here's one of those girls, our book critic, Maureen Corrigan. It's a late afternoon in the summer of 1962 in Sunnyside, Queens. People are coming home from work in the city exiting the nearby subway and walking by us. Four little girls sitting on the sidewalk in front of my apartment house. We have our Barbie carrying cases all lined up in a row, the way we imagine our houses will be someday when we grow up. 
None of us have Barbie's dream house yet, but pulled together, we have lots of clothes, those now vintage clothes. Our ponytailed Barbies were always trading outfits with each other. The iconic black and white bathing suit, the dress with a white chiffon portrait collar, and the black strapless evening gown with long white gloves. The grown-up passers-by sometimes stop to comment on our sidewalk tableau. Later on, I'll read the work of urban activist Jane Jacobs and realize these kind of random exchanges were part of what she called the ballet of the streets. But back then, they were just annoying intrusions into our play. I used to sew my doll clothes out of handkerchiefs, sniffed one woman. We ignore her. A man stops to boast that he's been on the Sing Along with Mitch Miller show, which was filmed in Rockefeller Center. Big deal. We ignore him, too. The only interruption we respond to, and quickly, is Ken. One of us has a frisky Ken who likes to knock on the imaginary doors of our doll case houses and try to kiss the Barbie who's foolish enough to answer. Ew. Ken's naughty behavior surely was some sign of pre-adolescent sexuality bubbling up. But back then, pushing, kissing Ken out the door is our way of solidifying the all-girl world of pink and possibility we want to remain in for a good long time. Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie is funny, smart, and nuanced from its opening moments, which nail the source of Barbie's enduring appeal, especially to girls like me, whose childhood was spent in a scratchy, skirted, pre-feminist world. In that opening, a godlike narrator, voiced by Helen Mirren, observes that from the beginning of time, girls have played with dolls— But before the advent of Barbie, those dolls were all babies who needed tending. So right. My Betsy Wetsy always needed a diaper change. My chatty Kathy needed to be taught not to interrupt. And my walking doll, whose name I've forgotten, always needed assistance lumbering around the living room. Before Barbie, playing with dolls was akin to running a combination nursery, rehab, and assisted living facility. But Barbie could fend for herself. Like Nancy Drew, she drove her own roadster and lived in her own dream house, Virginia Woolf's room of one's own, painted in pastels. Barbie didn't teach girls to be of service— she taught us the giddy pleasures of a seeming autonomy. Seeming, because Barbie's autonomy, which the film hilariously depicts in its opening version of Barbie Land, is limited to the gender norms of pre-second wave feminism, encased in pink bubble wrap. The already celebrated or notorious, depending on your politics, monologue towards the end of the film is delivered by actress America Ferreira, who plays a harried working mother. She addresses the Barbies now under the boot of a Ken-driven patriarchal counter-revolt, and her take on the contradictions and limitations of gender equality in the real world is the wised-up version of what I thought Barbie was showing me as a kid. Yes, Barbie is a beautiful image of ersatz freedom, but it's a freedom we non-plastic women must still fight for. Eventually, my childhood Barbie's world expanded, and so did mine. She bounced from job to job, doctor, astronaut, and acquired lots more fabulous clothes, many of which can be seen in the recent reprint of a wonderful book, Dressing Barbie, by Carol Spencer, who was one of the doll's early fashion designers. I was about 13 when my mother told me I had to give my Barbie away. She said I was too old for dolls. When the Barbie movie opened this weekend, my husband, adult daughter, and I nabbed tickets for a 9 a.m. show on Sunday morning. 
Even while I was happy to be with my family, deep down, I was fantasizing about what it would have been like to see the film with my old Barbie. She would have loved it and wouldn't have needed me to explain the insider jokes. We could have even shared some plastic popcorn and talked about what outfits to wear to the next phase of the feminist revolution. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll remember Tony Bennett and listen back to excerpts of interviews I recorded with him dating back to 1982 about his life and music. And we'll hear recordings that exemplify why he was one of the greatest interpreters of the great American songbook. He died Friday at age 96. I hope you'll join us. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. I just got an invitation through the mails. Your presence requested this evening. It's formal, a top hat, a white tie, and tails. Nothing now could take the wind out of my sails. Because I'm invited to step out this evening with top hat and white tie, and tails. Uh, putting on my top hat, tying up my white tie. Brushing off my tails I'm doing up my shirt front Putting in the shirt studs Polishing my nails This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. The right agent can make or break your home search. That's why Homes.com provides an agent directory that details each agent's experience so you can find the right one and ultimately the right home. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the platform for database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive at oracle.com slash NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.